I'm Anna. And I'm Kat. And this is Good Faith Comrades Philosophy Podcast. Transracialism and um, uh, do, what's her name? Duval's response. Duval's response to um, that whole phenomenon in the journal Hypatia. So, Kat, do you want to tell us a little intro about your paper? Yeah. So when I wrote th- I wrote this paper um, last spring semester, which was um, the season that uh, Tuvel's paper really like hit the fan in terms of like uh, academic circles, um, the kind of attention it was getting and the number of op-eds that were writing. It was the time, you know, I remember writing it uh, or getting the idea to write it after like signing the petition that had circulated. It was like an open letter to Hypatia requesting that they retract it. And there's just like a lot of complicated thoughts about um, academic freedom and integrity and stuff like that um, surrounding it. So I um, kind of picked up that controversy and um, like by extension, the particular case of Rachel Dolezal, which is the, the particular case that Tuval focuses on in her paper, In Defense of Transracialism, um, just kind of as a locus for, it, because this is a term paper and, and it was a capstone paper, so it, it's just kind of the locus for a lot of the conceptual stuff that we'd been working with in the class, um, which is primarily uh, Sally Hasslinger's book, Resisting Reality, and Miranda Fricker's book, uh, Epistemic Injustice. So two um, kind of different projects, uh, but both were used in the course to just kind of talk about um, the basics of social constructivism and of social ontology and epistemology and um, the way that power dynamics uh, operate on both of those systems. So I, I say a lot, of, well, not, not, not a lot, a lot, but it, it's paper is kind of, um, kind of all over the place in terms of like the sources that I drew from. Um, but just to kind of play more on, you know, to read more into like the, the power dynamics specifically, um, I used George uh, Ciccariello, I don't know if I'm pronouncing, I never know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but George Ciccariello Mayer's um, book, uh, shit, Decolonizing Dialectics. Yes, that yeah. one. Um, just because I wanted a reason to read it, uh, and if I got to read it, because it was new and sexy and just come out and I was excited about it, yeah. um, and had just borrowed a copy like, and got to read it uh, and get course credit for it. That was nice. <laughs> um, but it also worked really well, I think, with um, with the other sort. You know, the kind of the kind of project that I was hoping to do with the paper um, and Jose Medina's uh, epistemologies of resistance was also like I think my primary source for this paper. Um, but yeah, I know that you read it just recently and probably more helpful than me just kind of walking through my whole process of writing it would be you to just kind of, I guess, what what you took away from it. Yeah, one of the first things I noticed was um, how uh, intri- intricately you weaved in the sources into the paper um, because, I mean, like you just commented that like a lot of... Um, 
these theorists are like coming at it from different angles, but it didn't necessarily feel that way within the mm-hmm. paper. Um, so I think one thing I could start with is a quote that I pulled out from your paper, um, like one of the first things that struck me, um, and that was, uh, Dolezal's self-identification as transracial illustrates concepts like identity power and epistemic neglect, while Rebecca Duvall's widely disputed academic defense of transracialism and the surrounding debate illustrates concepts of silencing and epistemic disqualification. So I, I think it's very important to um, delineate the difference in like how whiteness plays out in both these women's cases mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's um, Dolezal's case where she's claiming to be black but in a lot of her actions like are easily coded as white like um, Kat and I, we just, for this episode... <laughs> to get hyped for this episode. <laughs> to get hyped for this episode, we watched the, well, at least a good chunk of the Netflix documentary on her, um, and, like, kind of trying to expose her side of the story, um, and in a lot of, in a lot of, um, the scenes in that documentary... She's doing a lot of stuff that a typical, like, middle-aged, kind of irritable white woman would do. Like, one that we were laughing about was, um, so she's got this whole kind of, like, victim complex thing going on from the start, but there was, like, she found a banana on her car, and she took a photo (laughs) of it, and she put on Instagram, like, someone is vandalizing my car and like it like blows up on social media and so like you could just see like you know an average like suburban like white soccer mom doing like the exact same thing Mm -hmm. like how how dare these hooligans vandalize my prized vehicle you know well and i think that um that's a good place to start talking about this thing too before like getting into kind of the theoretic you know the theoretics of um how like identity construction and mm-hmm. epistemology and like what's going on there um talking about power and talking about identity power specifically that is afforded by whiteness um is really interesting in both cases of the social backlash both the social backlash to Dolezal in Spokane Washington and to, you know, the kind of academic uh, milieu of social controversy and backlash to um, Rebecca Tuvel's piece. Um, Because in both cases, uh, both women claim to receive death threats, um, among lots of other more complex kinds um, kinds of backlash. And I think that the dynamics are really interesting, just because, I mean, obviously, and this is touched on a lot in the documentary, too, and a lot... Like, we should all draw our own conclusions about it, but there's a lot of um, controversy about whether or not Dolezal actually received real... Uh, some of the some of the threats that she claimed to receive, whether or not she was uh, making those up in order to garner some kind of attention, particularly for her chapter of the NAACC, or NAACP, um, because that was kind of the start of her... Uh, you know, it was like the media attention that was garnered around um, 
her claiming to have received these threats. Uh, it was like a death threat. Like some like nooses were found in her office or in her house or something like that. Um, and again, there's controversy about whether or not um, those are genuine and whether or not they were targeted toward her specifically. Um, and where was I going with that? There's yeah, there's controversy about whether or not those are those are real or not. Um, but regardless, I think that it's interesting the way the narrative kind of plays out in terms of like you you referenced her her victim her self victimization because in taking on an identity um, as an act of you know a lot of the rhetoric that she uses around it is um, I identify with this because of like the struggle like I love mm -hmm. you know like we're fighting for something that means something and that's why like a lot of her activism in the NAACP was very much like um, I, there's a clip in the beginning before all of the you know before she was outed as she as she says um in the media when she you know in that famous interview um there's a clip of her at an NAACP rally um saying Malcolm X is her hero <laughs> and things like that and and just describing why why that's the case for her and it's interesting because a little bit later in the documentary there's an interview with another member of the NAACP who is a black woman um and she says something about how Dolezal never really had a story. Um, she's, you know, that was something that struck her about um, Dolezal as being uh, interesting or different from a lot of the other members of her community. It was just that Dolezal doesn't have like a narrative of like, this is like when I realized what's happening and why I needed to like become a part of something that was, you know, like resistant in some way. And, um, and so a lot of um, the attention around the death threats and stuff like that, um, kind of has the idea that Dolezal is constructing um, this facetious threat. It, the, the rhetoric in the documentary is that like she's trying to demonstrate that there's a resurgence of white supremacy and by, via that, you know, like attention garnering, like get well-meaning liberals or whoever else she's mm -hmm. speaking, you know, whoever she's targeting in her community to like shout down some racism, you know, like, she, and, and um, and it's it's it just strikes me as very interesting that like she it, it speaks volumes I think that she needs to create a scandal in order to make people see racism. Yeah. <laughs> if, that, yeah. if that's what she's articulating as yeah. her end, you know, she's like, I want people to see that this mm -hmm. is real and this is happening. It's like, you don't fucking have to make shit up. Like, look at the cops. Like, look yeah. at, you know, you don't have to fucking yeah. make the, like, that's the another... fucking prison system. Like, you don't have to, there is um, no need to, to create a narrative that doesn't, that isn't already there. You yeah. just have to live it and experience it, which she obviously hasn't because her black identity, as she calls it, is something that she put on a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and that's another thing you commented on when we watched the documentary, is that, like, when all this alleged stuff started happening, like the death threats, the nooses, the harassment, she went right to the police, like, Mm -hmm. There's no distrust of the police like there typically is. Well, there's on the behalf of the police. Well, it's well, yeah, the interview yeah. with the one cop, the one yeah. take that they interviewed in this documentary yeah. seemed distrustful of yeah. but I, mm. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you. No, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but, like, the way she responds to things and the way that she kind of makes her way in the world mm. seems very white. You know, yeah. like it's it's weird to say, um, but I mean, like, admittedly, we're both white women. I think we can recognize like 
when that's going on and when it's not. And, like, we should, I think, also clarify that, like, we don't know the black experience and, like, what that is. Just, like, generally, not in terms of, like, like, Dolezal might have, like, a better idea of this. But just, like, generally acknowledging that, like, we are not the best authorities on this as well. Yeah. Um, no, and that is important. And and I think that Dolezal's case in particular is something, and, and we get into, like, the theoretics of it, I think it becomes a little bit easier to articulate why it is this way. But I think that Dolezal's case is... Um, is something much more complex than a case of cultural appropriation because yeah. there are all kinds of mm-hmm. white women who, you know, try to act black mm-hmm. and it's not about acting white or black. Like it, it's about something much more. It's not about how Dolezal chooses to wear her hair, regardless of, you know, the problematic nature of like um, all of her decisions about self-representation and about um, like cultural engagement and, and shit like that. It's like, it's, it's something much more fundamental. It's something much more ontological and um, something that like is just fundamentally a failure to address um, foundational kind of structuring and orientation of power that uh, orders all of our lives. Um, and like these constructions of, of race that like have material consequences on our lives every single day. Um, and fundamentally it's something much more like I said much more ontological than that it's about like can I be in the world in this particular type of way um and why not because look at all of these good things that I've done for the community or whatever um and recognizing that it's not really about um how much appropriation or how much you know whatever community service she's done mm-hmm. it's 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 about uh you know it's just about the identity and yeah. like the conversation begins mm-hmm. and ends there and um yeah I think that framing the conversation in terms of something more existential and ontological than, than just like, you know, Dolezal is appropriating black culture. Yes. I think it's, it's just yes. the, yeah, because yeah, I agree. the appropriation is a separate conversation. It's a conversation yeah. that ought to happen, mm-hmm. um, but it's separate from like the particular case of Dolezal, mm-hmm. which is like so sensationalized and so fascinating. And the thing that struck me so much as we watched that documentary too, is like, why doesn't she fucking drop it? Like, that's, yeah. like, my only thought. Like, without, like, stopping any other, like, higher-level analysis. Like, all there's, all I can think is, like, why doesn't she fucking drop it? Why doesn't she fucking say it? Like, just say, you know, yeah, my mom and dad are white. I am white. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm blonde. You know, like, yeah. like just, like, um, instead of, like, just seemingly, you know, in that, in that interview, which I talk about, like, when the reporter asks her to her face, are you African-American? And she responds, I don't understand the question. It just, like, speaks volumes to, like, um, what is at the core of Dolezal's attempted um, identity (laughs) self-construction. Because um, identities are not something that we can um, put on in a vacuum. You know, they're socially constructed. And, and, um, yeah, anyway. Mm -hmm. But getting back to your, sorry, I totally derailed from your notes. No, no, it's good. Um, It's good to have the discourse. (laughs) Um, so the second thing that, um, I noted, the second quote that I really liked, um, I said, good distinction, quote, voices can be denied credibility or disqualified as sources of knowledge epistemically, 
through epistemic vices like refusal to listen to the testimonies of socially disadvantaged people or failure to demonstrate receptivity to those testimonies, voices can also be disqualified as valid sources of knowledge ontologically by an a priori exclusion from social categories deemed credible according to dominant knowledge. So kind of like making that different distinction there, like going back mm -hmm. to the material reality of like people being oppressed versus the ontological side of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's important just to like to footnote here that um, throughout this paper, like I, I used very Frickerian terminology, mm -hmm. you know, following Miranda Fricker and yeah. like the epistemic mm -hmm. injustice. And um, it's interesting that, you know, I, I cite her so heavily in this paper um, and also have to constantly be in conversation with the fact that like Miranda's one of the primary and I think most important critiques of Miranda Fricker's construction of epistemic injustice as she does in that book, which was, um, I think, you know, it, granted a lot of like ground to the conversation around epistemology and ethics um, in a way that it hadn't quite been, I don't know, it, was, it, was, it made it easier to talk about, I think, in a lot of academic spaces um, than it had been previously, just because epistemology is so colored by that enlightenment ideology of mm -hmm. pure rationality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, how can you say that the study of knowledge can be done rightly or wrongly or, you know, in a way that is good or bad, you know, <laughs> or more in a moral sense? And, um, and so, yeah, I do think that it granted a lot of ground to that conversation, but one of the primary critiques of Miranda Fricker's account is um, that it doesn't have room in it or account for white ignorance. And um, that's something that, like, that's why I, I think that relying on, like, Jose Medina and um, Tikaray Lemaire is, like, much, just kind of lent more of the space to talk about that, which is central to approaching this particular issue of transracialism and the way that it's been talked about and the rhetoric that surrounds it uh, over this past, what, year or two? When mm. it's been <laughs> uh, since Dolezal kind of hit the fan. Yeah. Um, but um, going back to that particular like bit that you quoted there, um, talking about the way that silencing happens on the basis of identity is something that I think Fricker does pretty well. Um, and I also really like the framing of it in terms of virtue and vice, just because that's my particular area of interest in virtue ethics. Um, I like talking about like more like the cultivation and like practice of disposing yourself well towards someone in an epistemological sense, you know, as a listener or as a speaker, you know, like, um, and, uh, sorry, what was the last part of your question about like the ont ontological? Oh, I just said it was good that you made the distinction between like a refusal to listen to people mm -hmm. materially and then mm -hmm. like the ontological exclusion from social categories. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that that um, sort of like practices of exclusion and silencing, um, I, I so far like the best way that I think to talk about them is in terms of like virtue and vice, is in terms of like not performing, the, you know, being a virtuous listener, being a virtuous, you know, uh, you know, embodying certain sort of like intellectual virtues and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge part of this conversation, especially when we start talking about um, Tuvel and the response to Tuvel, just because so much of that conversation um, was just 
directed by dominant knowledge, um, which the way it operates in the academy is something like very, very um, difficult to kind of unpack because it's just so solidly built into the you know the whole system of the academy and like what gets published and what doesn't get published. Mm -hmm. So like what what the, what the narrative has to work with and what's at its mm -hmm. disposal is already something that is shaped and constructed by um, the dominant narrative. You know the dominant yeah. knowledge that um, you know that has been has taken hold in it because of the identity power of yeah. the dominant social groups mm -hmm. that you know that operate in the academy. Um, so thinking about to Val's piece and the backlash to it and the way that like epistemic vices um what which I, epistemic vices we can point to in that um it's really just that there are a lot of um a lot of hot takes on to Val's piece um that are extremely reactionary like that's what a backlash is you know um and not and just recognizing that like Tuvel, I, I feel like we need to talk more about Tuvel's paper, just like for those okay. who might listen and don't, um, maybe haven't, aren't familiar with this backlash. Yeah. It was a really big deal like last spring, but um, Rebecca Tuvel, the paper was actually titled, I don't know if you mentioned the title, it's In Defense of Transracialism, um, which already like that's enough for people to just, you know, go <laughs> off, like yeah. you don't have to read the paper, but um, the basically in a nutshell, the argument that Tuvel makes is that the same kinds of arguments that we use to sort of account for the realness and the, the reality of transgender identities are the same kind of arguments that we can use to justify transracial identities. Um, so it's actually a much weaker claim than a lot of people think that Tuvel is making. I think, and the title does not help that at all no. <laughs> it's uh, it's not a very strong claim it's, uh, Tuvel doesn't really set out to like defend Rachel Dolezal but it's very much what happens you know what I mean because mm -hmm. like the narrative that she gives leaves out all of this theory <laughs> that um, doesn't um, allow for this kind of argumentation to happen and so it, it's hard to say to what extent Tuvel acts in bad faith but it's very easy to see um, the amount of narratival evidence, the amount of like phenomenological evidence um, based on the experiences of actual transgender people and actual black people um, were not looked at or accounted for in any way, shape, or form no. in um, Tivel's uh, practice of writing this paper. And I think it's um, really important to notice, and there's very good reason for the fact that Tivel, um primarily cites Sally Haslinger in constructing this argument um, because Sally Haslinger's particular kind of feminist project of um, accounting for a radical social constructivism that is in line and in accordance with like the feminist tradition um, but is also palatable to like pretty intense analytic um, philosophy um, and does feminist metaphysics in a, in a way that is pretty um, that hasn't really been done before um, and so it's like a lot that is good for making more space on the table for certain discussions, but also like Sally Haslinger's social constructive project is very trans-exclusionary. And so the fact that um, Tavelle relies so heavily on her, I think speaks a lot. And interestingly, just um, narratively, I think that there was, a, there, I was as we were watching this documentary, I was just seeing some similarities 
um, in the narrative of Dolezal to a lot of what I know about Hasslinger, um, interestingly. Just because I remember there's a little bit, there's, uh, I don't remember where it is in Resisting Reality, but Hasslinger says something about when she's talking about the radical social constructive nature of racial identity, um, she basically, uh, I don't, I don't want to misrepresent her, and so, like, but she says something about the fact that she partakes in um, blackness in some way. This is not the language that she uses, but this is, like, what she's getting at. Um, because she's adopted a couple black kids, and so is Dolezal. You know, that's, like, um, something that's really central to, like, uh, her story is that um, she talks about the way that coming from, like, a very traumatically abusive home um, in a white family, white evangelical family, which is a whole other dimension yeah. that we could talk yeah. about, she found herself, like found solace, found whatever, like in a coming of agey sort of sense um, in her family's Christ-ordained adoption of some black children. And um, just the, the way that she would defend her, you know, um, these kids and like the, the relationship that she built with them um, and still has to this day, you know, they're in the documentary that, you know, it's, it's interesting. to think about the dynamics there, um, their whole family debacle situation aside, um, cause it was just a horrific situation. So I think that to get back to, to, to get back to the conversation about, um, identity formation and construction, um, relying on the, radical feminist social constructivism that Hasslinger presents, I think is central to this whole narrative just because um, it's a really easy way to get around actually talking about what it's, what um, blackness is like. It, mm -hmm. It's it's just very contrary to a lot of like, you know, black studies and mm -hmm. um, critical race theory because it does not in any way, shape or form account for or address mm -hmm. the material reality and lived experience of race especially race in america and race in the west and mm -hmm. and and so um that's why it's so easy to write that paper <laughs> um, that's why it's yeah. so easy and and again like i can't yeah so i think one thing that stuck out to me from what you said is um just kind of like how the nature of academia has you know allowed to to write this paper in the first mm -hmm. place and how like there are so many other like credible writers with well, not that she's not credible but like mm -hmm. that this argument isn't credible it's just kind of Tubell's papers and exposure of like how the academic machine works sometimes mm -hmm. in giving preferential treatment to a white woman who's just trying to explore the ideas like the Enlightenment told us to. <laughs> yeah. Like, everything's yeah. open for mm -hmm. debate and discussion. Exactly. We don't have to contextualize exactly. anything. Yeah, and ex that's so true. And um, that a lot of the rhetoric in her defense, um, it revolves on this fragility of white femininity mm -hmm. um which is like one of the most powerful tools of white supremacy yeah. you know to say oh but she's young and and a lot of the defenses also you know are about age and about um you know that she's not a full professor and we ought to defend her and you know like, for all these reasons she's like a young academic and we can't fault them you know like she's mm -hmm. learning or whatever um and that doesn't really account for like you said the whole the way that ma the machinery of academia 
um, works because like that whole board in Hypatia read this paper. Um, and um, yeah, but going back to it, you phrased it so well when you talked about um, the way that like, we don't have to actually address any of the, you know, material realities or conditions and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, it's just an idea. And I'm just so interested in it. We just want to investigate and interrogate what it might be like to think about this situation in this particular way. What's the harm in that? And um, that is so characteristic of the academy. And it's the way that these, that's, that's the reason that these arguments are possible. Because it's, everything is framed in the sense of, um, is it possible to be in the world in this way? Let's think about it rather than rooting in a material and existential analysis of, oh, there are people who live in the world in this way. Let's think about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why, like, and there's a lot of reasons why, and, you know, just because of the way that whiteness operates and, and um, the identity power that it affords people and also what people are interested in. Um, what sells like <laughs> Dolezal has a fucking documentary on Netflix you know yeah. it's hard to like push her victim narrative yeah. this seems pretty sympathetic so far I haven't finished it yet but you know um, it's like, like you can't have both but you can if you're white you know like yeah, yeah. Um, you can't also you know be the victim mm-hmm. and also be this triumphal sort of like against all odds I lived my life and I'm doing well mm-hmm. um, and um, there's a reason why like Rachel Dolezal gets a whole fucking documentary and people write academic papers um, comparing her particular situation to um, the lived experience of an enormous community of people who are living their lives, you know, just mm-hmm. out there being, mm-hmm. and also um, the theory that is being done uh, around, about those particular experiences from a material analysis of their, you know, lived experience. Yeah, like, if I, Dolezal gets to, like, this documentary, and people write papers about her, and, like, mm-hmm. Julia Serrano's still publishing on Medium. All of this work is out there. Yeah. What sells in the Academy is very similar to what sells, um, like, on Netflix or yes. whatever other, mm-hmm. you know, like, the times, there was that recent, we talked a little bit about, I think it was um, Life magazine, but there's this guy, this cis dude, who's write, writes these, like, these just painfully, like, pontificating, like, ruminating op-eds about the trans issue. Um, and just, just like, just ruminating on, like, what could it be like? You know, like, gender is happening. What could it be like if everyone just told us their pronouns and we used them? Like, what would the world, imagine, what would the world be like? Can I go for this? I don't know. You know, like, just, just this rambling sort of um, pieces and um, they sell, and they are counted as credible, and they're published, and you know, yep. um, and they rely fundamentally on the systemic um, reality that is just uh, an assumption of the unreality and the kind of fakeness of non-normative identities, yeah. whether it's you know a gender identity or or um, just the or the assumption of like w- the way that whiteness like takes like the reality of the people that it oppresses and co-ops it and like absorbs it into its own hegemony Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i think the other thing with that author who writes those articles is that um you know a lot of those viewpoints a lot of those kind of like more liberal op-eds operate out of a place of both ignorance and kind of, like, appealing to, like, a political centrism, Mm -hmm. you know, where, like, 
yeah, both sides can read this yeah, and it's palatable yeah, yeah, yeah. because I'm just thinking through the thoughts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Um, yeah, yeah and, exactly. And, I'm, a, I'm a times editor. I can think these thoughts. Everyone ought to listen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to know um, that I put in my notes while I was reading your paper is that um, Dolezal validates her claim that she's black and the fact that race is socially construction race is socially constructed which many will acknowledge that race is a socially constructed thing um but then compares herself to trans people who most don't acknowledge as valid so there's also this kind of like inversion there where she will say well race is the social thing that we've made up and it's a lot like, um, you know, a trans person's experience, but, like, a trans person doesn't make up, you know, their experience. Like, it's not, like, a socially constructed thing. Yeah, and I think that that's um, one of the most important distinctions to make, too, in talking about social constructivism, because I vibe with a lot of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I do think that race is socially constructed in a large sense, but it's a socially constructed phenomenon um, that becomes codified in systems of power that already exist and it yes. has severe material consequences yes. on actual people's lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that's not, you can, and, and I think that because there's a lot of, um, like, tumblery kind of discourse, it's just like, man, uh, what's, what's one? Um, like, alarm clocks are a social construct. <laughs> So I'm not going to like get up, you know, so I don't have to get up on time or something, you know, like it's become very much like a catchphrase and one of those Mm -hmm. things that like people say it enough to where it it just becomes completely unserious. Mm -hmm. Um, And just because something is socially constructed doesn't mean it's less real. Like we're all socially constructed. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, Just recognizing like the realness of the, the apparatus that is. Yeah, and that's another thing you captured in this next mm-hmm. quote that um, I wrote down, which is transracialism must regard the reality and experiences of marginalized groups as abstract potentiality rather than mm-hmm. as material identities, right. which I think is like right. very good wording of that. Because there's no way to um, be in the world alongside these people who have these experiences and be able to like bloviate about like, you know, this particular woman who was born white and and now like after a fucking like two years now of like non-stop backlash non-stop like media attacks all this bullshit um will not drop it like will not let it go and it's like even more valorized in this and and it's like so many complex ways that she like tries to absorb and like replicate and like yeah just appropriate uh what her idea of what it's like to be a black woman is the reason that that can happen is just because she doesn't have the lived experience of it there's such a good oh i wish that i had um, done a little more research before this so i could pull out particular like episodes and interviews and stuff that i've seen but in that documentary there's like a little montage at the beginning of just some of the media conversation about it and there's whoopi goldberg um, says something like, oh, well, she's been passing for so many years before she was, like, outed as having been born to white parents and whatever is white. Um, and, yeah, what she says is, like, she's been passing for this many years and she still doesn't get it. Like, she's never going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think that uh, so I, I cite an interview that Ijeoma Aluo um, did with Dolajal back when it was really like at the height of, of its media like um, frenzy. And I, I think there's just like a really deep truth to the fact that like no matter how many ways you try and replicate the lived experience of a person with an identity that is not yours, um, you don't know what it's like to be in a world with that identity. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so Ejio Moluo um, talks about like no amount, uh, you know, like no, no amount of like tanning and braids and whatever the fuck, you know, um, will give Dolajal the inherited trauma and understanding of like what it's like to live here and be black, you know? Again, the only reason that like Dolajal can keep up this narrative for as long as she have and like has and can't let it go is just that to her it's something that it literally the way that she states it is it's a state of mind this is a state of mind for me race is a state of mind um Mm -hmm. that's something she said more than once and uh, as far as i know because this documentary is pretty recent um this is the position she holds today um and and the way she likes to talk about it in like a different sense of social constructivism she likes to she said something um, in an interview that was like, oh, well, people define race in a lot of ways, or they define black. I think she's saying they define um, what it is to be black in a lot of ways. Black can be philosophical. It can be, uh, so you know, sociological. It can be biological. It can be biological. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and for me, it's just a state of mind. <laughs> I can, and it's something she can put on and take off anytime she decides. Um, not to be anymore, mm-hmm. um, not to present in the way that she presents, she yep. can stop. And yep. that's just fundamentally like, and Ijeoma Oluo also um, makes an important point um, about like the way that transracialism seems, you know, in, in examples like Dolezal's the only one that I really understand enough and have seen enough of to like have an account of. And I know that the few other cases that I've heard of that can be described of as transracialism, as an ism, whatever, however we want to construct that. Um, are uh, one way racially, <laughs> you know, it's white folks trying to be someone else um, for shits and giggles, as it were. Um, uh, and Ijeoma Luo, like I said, makes a really important point that um, what Dolezal is doing um, or attempts to do, the way she attempts to identify, is um, nothing like um, what we might describe. You know, what has been talked about as like white passing as a phenomenon. Um, just because, like, that's not how power works, you know, like, fun- fundamental and central to um, Dolezal's narrative is um, that she comes from a, a place of identity power just because of her identity as a white woman, um, and this is, like, it's from out of that sh- that she operates in the way that she, you know, her social identity formation is predicated by that. Um, that's the only way that it can happen, and, um, yeah, I think that's just an important point. Yeah, Definitely. So, as we kind of get to the end of this conversation, I hope that we've given listeners some things to think about in regards to this whole phenomenon, social construction, ontology, etc. And I just want to pull out one more quote that you had at the end of your paper um, that I thought was important. You say, the delegitimization of oppressed persons' narratives is an epistemic wrong that per se, that pervades academia. 
Wow, I'm really good at reading. Those are also um, bigger words than I needed to use there. No, I think it's good because we we touched on this a bit before, but like even the fact that Dolezal's case did explode so much, exploded not only like within, you know, like the popular media, but also within the academic community mm-hmm. kind of shows how like something like this is put to the front in terms of like, a pressing issue that we need to discuss rather than, Mm -hmm. like, the material lived experiences of black people who are oppressed in the U.S., Mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't make headlines all the time. Instead, we're talking about this white woman who claims that she's black and Spokane wherever, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, uh, that speaks volumes about, I think, <laughs> what what kind of forces and social power is operative in Dolezal's case? But yeah, I mean, I could talk for like I could, I could talk all night about this. <laughs> There's so much more. As so I'm just like I'm thinking back through that. I'm so excited to watch the rest of the documentary because I think that. <laughs> Jesse, he's he pointed out to me.